So we're going to finish John chapter 5 this morning, verses 30 through 47. You'll notice you don't really have an outline. I was a bit distracted this week. Just never felt good with what I had at putting an outline together to publish in the bulletin. So you just have to live with what you got. I've had to live with what I got this week, so it's your turn. You can live with what you got. Tom's going to come up and read the passage for us as we uh, look into this section about Jesus and the witnesses about him and why we should believe them and the problems that the Pharisees had because they didn't. So, Tom, if you would, please come on up and read that for us. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me He has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thanks, Tom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your loving kindness that you just pour out on us through your word through your gifts of the Spirit. And Lord, we pray now in this this time when we look into these verses from John chapter 5 that you would open the eyes of our hearts and open the ears and the minds to understand, to be able to hear you and to know you, to see your glory and to revel in it. And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So in verse 30, Jesus talks about this thing about him being a judge, which you know he really hinted at in verse 29. We talked about last week because he's the one who has 
the ability to make the judgment for life and death, to bring back the resurrection of life there in verse 29 and the resurrection of ju- to the and the evil ones for the resurrection of judgment. And then he says, I can do nothing on my own as I have, as I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This idea of judging is just a subtle reference by Jesus to, to Moses, who has always been seen by the Jews as the greatest judge Israel's ever had. And now here Jesus is saying, you guys think about Moses and hold to the teachings of Moses, who was the greatest judge of Israel. Now I am here and I judge you and judge Israel because I'm greater than Moses. But that raises a interesting question, at least it does for me. What criteria does Jesus use to judge? If Jesus is going to judge, you're going to judge based on a set of standards or a set of rules. And what is it that Jesus says he bases his judgment is on? The one that basis that makes his judgment just. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what he says. Seeking the will of the Father is what makes his judgment just and the basis on which he judges. Now think about that for a second. Jesus' judgment is just because he bases it on the will of the Father. So he's judging based on who's doing the will of the Father. Wow, you know, now listening to God and doing what he calls us to do seems more weighty, more serious. Because in some way, in some fashion, maybe not that we can completely understand or articulate, I certainly can't understand or articulate it, that part of his judgment is are we doing the Father's will when he's judging us? Hmm. Then he talks about this testimony of himself, the testimonies to Jesus, the testimonies of who he is in these verses 31 through 39. And as we will see a little later on, the one bearing witness to Jesus about Jesus is the father himself. And we have this from first John. It didn't, you know, as I was putting these verses together, it didn't you know, it didn't escape my notice that most likely there wasn't very much time between when John wrote this part of John's gospel and when he writes these words in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I know that just seems so simplistic. I mean, most of us have completely grasp the concept and the idea that whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
But it doesn't seem to be such a small thing to John the Apostle because he emphasizes this so many times in both his gospel and in First John. He seems to think this is a pretty big thing, that it's too easy to overlook, it's too easy to miss, it's too easy to not grasp what it really means. And so he just keeps emphasizing this over and over, that whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And I don't know what that, I don't really understand. Why does it seem, why does he seem, why does he need to emphasize something so much that just seems so simple that you get it the first time he says it? I don't know. I mean, my conclusion is that we don't get it as much as we think we get it. I don't. I've come to the conclusion I don't get it as much as I think I get it. To have the Son is to have life. But to not have Him is to not have life. That includes all those moments when I'm thinking, believing, and acting like I don't have Him. Maybe that's what John means. We're not good at living life 100% in the category of having the son, but that at times we live like we don't have him. And in those times that we live like we don't have him, we don't have life. We have something else. And at the expense of taking two extremes, the opposite of life is death. But then this whole thing about testimony, this even he says this in first John, what whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. What? Can't you just speak plainly, John? I mean, can't you just use English? He, He couldn't. No. English didn't exist at that moment. But. What does that mean? How how do I have the testimony in myself that he is who he says he is? How does that work? Of course, John's writing these words with the benefit of post-Acts chapter 2, post-Pentecost. Of course, he writes the gospel post-Pentecost as well. But he does a good job of staying within the context of the him and the disciples not knowing what it was like to have the Spirit when they were walking through these events with Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the only thing that it can mean is that whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony of the Holy Spirit in himself, witnessing to him that Jesus is who he says he is. That pronoun himself, which him is it referring to? Is it referring to him, the son of God, or is it referring to him, the one who believes? Which one is it? This is sometimes the brilliancy in John's writing of his words. To me, it's the evidence of his inspiration from the Holy Spirit. So which him is it referring to? Is it referring to him, the Holy Spirit, or referring to him, the one who believes? Yes, both. The himself is referring to both. 
Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in him of the Holy Spirit and the Son of God witnessing to him. Wow, okay. That's deep. That's like metaphysical, philosophical deep. I'm just a simple country boy. This is, let's just keep it simple and out of my reach. I also have a blind spot over to the right, so this is probably not a good place. We'll just move that a little bit. Because I can't talk if I can't use my hands. If you want to shut me up, just handcuff my hands behind my back and I'll be quiet. Well, no, not really, but I'll be less talkative. I get him. I get him in me and I get life. Well, great. What else do I get? It's almost like a kid in the candy store. What else do I get? I mean, you would think, oh, can't you just be satisfied with that? Well, yeah, I can, but do I have to? Can I get more? Is there more? Can I have more? And this testimony of himself and this testimony that God the Father is revealing to all of us. And he refers to specifically John the Baptist here in verse 33. You you sent to John and he was born witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Listen to that. He points to the testimony of John, not because he needs the testimony of John, but so that you may be saved. Now, it's easy for us in this moment to step back, be objective here, and realize that that you in verse 33 is to the you, the Pharisees. but we should always put the you in a very personal way when we read scripture. There should be a moment where we just sort of pause and go, I say these things so that Brian may be saved. I say these things so that Cheryl may be saved. Say these things so that Kiyomi may be saved. I say these things so that Neva may be saved. When we do, suddenly seems a lot more weighty, doesn't it? Suddenly seems a lot more of, oh, oh, okay. So I need to be paying attention to what John said. John the Baptist. And Jesus points back to John the Baptist about the things he said and then tells the Pharisees this, that John, he, John, verse 35, was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. See, the Pharisees were reluctant believers in John the Baptist because Matthew records this for us in Matthew chapter 21, verses 25 through 27. Jesus asked the Pharisees this question, the baptism of John, from where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves. Right, I can, when, when, when I read that, they discussed it among themselves. It's almost like a scene from The Office 
where the corporate executives have to gather together and have a committee meeting to answer somebody's question. You can just imagine them huddling over in the corner like, okay, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from man, well, the whole crowd's going to beat the snot out of us. I'm paraphrasing with the translation of Brian. And they discussed among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us why he, Jesus, will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. You're kidding me. That's your answer to John the Baptist. Where did he come from? Was his baptism from heaven or from man? So they were reluctant believers in John's word. They liked John the Baptist calling everybody to repentance and to obey the law. They liked that John the Baptist. They just didn't like the one that said Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't like that John the Baptist. I just think it's so fortunate that we don't have that problem today. We don't have that problem of liking the Jesus who loves us, but not the Jesus who judges us. We like the Jesus who makes everything wonderful, but not the Jesus who lets hard things happen. Which Jesus are we going to believe in? And then Jesus points to the other part of his testimony, which are the works that he's doing. The things that he's accomplishing are the very things that the Father has called him to, but the testimony, verse 36, that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father have given me to do to accomplish these very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Remember how this whole mess got started in this confrontation with the Pharisees? It goes back to him healing the lame guy at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. As you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I read Isaiah 35 to you where it proclaims the things that happen when the Messiah comes and healing the lame, healing the blind, healing the deaf and healing the mute are all four types of signs that the Messiah has come. And here, oh, by the way, those four things, no prophet ever did those four things in the Old Testament. Isaiah and Elijah both raised people from the dead. So Jesus raising people from the dead is not evidence of his Messiahship because Elijah and Elisha did that. But no prophet ever healed a blind person. They never healed a person born blind. They never healed a lame person. They never healed a deaf person. They never healed a mute person. Those four things were reserved exclusively for the Messiah. And here Jesus does the first one. These are the Pharisees. They know the law inside and out. And everybody loves the prophet Isaiah. So they had to know this one. They had to know, they had to know Isaiah 35. And they still wouldn't believe. 
their unbelief displays the hardness of their hearts, not a lack of knowledge. Knowledge was not their problem. They knew Isaiah 35. They knew what it meant for him to heal a lame person. And to do it on the Sabbath was an exclamation mark. But then Jesus tells this about the Pharisees from Luke chapter 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that's what happened. Even Jesus' resurrection from the dead still didn't convince the Pharisees. So good that we don't have those kind of hard hearts. Then we come to verses 39 and 40 where Jesus makes this astounding statement. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I mean, you know, his confrontation with the Pharisees get pretty intense, but this one is, I mean... Really, listen to what he says. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Try putting your name in there now. This gets really uncomfortable. At least it does for me, right? Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We can say, of course, well, but that doesn't really, I mean, that's not true. We've, we've come to Jesus. We've accepted him as our savior. Yes. But it goes back to the thing I said earlier that what about that? The times we, we don't go to him for whatever reason, no matter how justified it is because of our fallen human nature, the reality is still this, that there are times when I just won't go to him. I refuse to go to him. And as a result, I don't have life. But then this statement of you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life or in them they have eternal life. This is looking into the Old Testament to find life, but missing it for the Pharisees. They're scraping through the scriptures trying to find life. And they're missing it when life from the scriptures walks in front of them. They're missing it when life from the scriptures heals the lame man at the pool on a Sabbath. Jesus is pointing out a reality that I uncomfortably came to discover myself through my own experiences. More knowledge does not mean more righteousness. There was a period of time when I thought that 
the way I could be more righteous is to, is to study harder and learn more. Search the scriptures and I would be more righteous. Because I was, it was all intellectual in reality. I wanted the truth of the Savior, but it kept it all in my head. It was never traveling from the head to the heart because I was afraid of what would happen if I let it out of my head. And as a result, I studied, and the more I studied to find righteousness, the more unrighteous I felt. And it wasn't until I tasted the glory of God's love and all that knowledge that I've been stuffing in my head moved from the head to the heart that I found life and righteousness. And this idea of looking for life and missing it, it's still haunting mankind today. We hear it everywhere in our society, don't we? People constantly talking about trying to find the meaning of life, going on their their quest to find meaning and purpose. They aren't looking in Scripture, but they're still looking for life and not finding it. Because you will never, no matter who you are, no matter your ethnicity or your bloodlines, you cannot find life apart from Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter where you are. So yes, I'm saying it bluntly to anybody that's listening. You're only going to find life by finding Jesus. Period. You can disagree with me if you wish. But you won't be able to get away from it. And it will continue to haunt you just like the quest for meaning and purpose is haunting you today. And then the love of God in verses 41 through 43. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You can't hate what you love and you can't love what you hate. They say they love God, but yet they don't have the love of God. And why do they not have the love of God? Because they hate Jesus. You can't hate Jesus and love God because Jesus is God. Remember, he and the Father are one. To hate him is to hate the Father. Which brings us to this reality that just because you say it don't mean that you meant it. Just because I say I love Jesus doesn't mean it if I don't act like I love Jesus. Just because we say we love Jesus doesn't mean it if we don't act like we love Jesus. I love the word as long as I don't have to deal with what it means. Then Moses and Jesus here in verses 44 through 47 here in verse 44, Jesus uncovers the heart of their disbelief. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? 
Their disbelief comes from their vain glory. This is why belief in Jesus and the confession of faith in Christ is an act of humility and humbling. They were interested in their own glory and their own exaltation. And I don't exactly understand how, but the reality is, is that part of trusting in Christ and coming to faith in him is this humbling of ourselves to him and to the reality that he is who he is and the, and the act of humility to acknowledge that I need his salvation. And this isn't just a truth and reality for those of us who already believe in Jesus. It's a reality of every day. Every day I wake up, I have to humble myself to him and who he is because I'm just as prideful as the next guy if I don't have something to keep it in check. And if it doesn't go in check, I will start seeking my own vainglory just like the Pharisees did. And my conclusion is that's true for everybody. I'm not unique that all of us, every day we wake up, have to humble ourselves to the Lord Jesus and make this act of humility to confess him as our Savior and Lord and our need for him. Otherwise, the pride of life will take over. And what did Moses say about Jesus? Where in the law of Moses did he say about say anything about you, Jesus? Well, we have to go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18 specifically, although it's really much bigger and broader than that, but that's the only part we have time to look at. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Why does this prophet Jesus need to come? Because you and I can't handle hearing the voice of God. Everywhere in scripture that the voice of God speaks, the response by the human person is always the same. They fall flat on their face and they are convinced they're going to die. Everywhere. Doesn't matter where. Doesn't matter who. When they hear the voice of God speaking, they go face first, and they are freaked out. Scared. What Moses is referring to is that moment when God spoke from the mountain, standing there at Mount Horeb, where he gave the law. And they were like, no! don't talk to us we will die if we hear your voice just hearing his voice will make your heart stop that's how afraid they were that's what's something we don't understand because we have never experienced it 
This hearing the voice of God just really is frightening. And they were like, no, you, no, no, we don't want to hear. We don't want to hear his voice. It's too scary. Moses, you go talk to the scary God and then come tell us what he said. And then God says to them, they're right. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Now, some, especially of the Jewish bent, will point to these verses where we say he's talking about Jesus. And they will go, well, but he's really all the prophets can fit under this category of verse 18 of those who he has put words in their mouth and they will speak them all that God commands them to speak. Well, that's true. That's absolutely 100% true. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all those other guys, we can't remember their names. They were speaking all that the Lord commanded them and he put his words in their mouths. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different because they were like temporary temporary prophets. They were there for a moment for that time because they really needed to hear those words from God and to prepare the way for Jesus. Because every single one of the prophets said something to us as part of the preparation for Jesus. Whether it was a messianic prophecy or a sign of what it looks like when the Messiah comes. And notice why God is sending the prophet like Moses. They just can't handle hearing his voice. That's why. And Jesus didn't just challenge the interpretation of Moses to the Pharisees. He actually accuses them of not believing Moses. Oh, we do you really have to say that one, Jesus? I mean, you can imagine being one of the disciples standing there like, oh, 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 this is going to be bad. This is going to be bad. He just accused them. He just accused them of not even believing Moses. I mean, that's like accusing a diehard Broncos fan of not believing in the Broncos. You can just see the phone. You can just imagine the throwing dirt in the air, foaming at the mouth, gnashing their teeth. I mean, you can almost imagine the rage that exuded from the Pharisees when Jesus accuses them of not even believing Moses. Oh. But like everything else, no matter how much they didn't like it, no matter how much I don't like it, Jesus is telling the truth. They didn't believe in Moses. If they really believed in Moses, they would believe in Jesus. So what are we going to do with all this? I don't know. I don't know what you're going to do with all this, but it's, I got three things is like, this is enough for me for the next 20 years. So whose glory am I seeking? Whose glory are we seeking? Right? The disciples got, I mean, the Pharisees got it all wrong because of their own vain glory. They were interested in their own glory. So whose glory are we seeking? Every moment that we study in the word is to bring our hearts to a greater love and awe of Jesus.
And, and at the point where we stopped being awed and our love for Jesus increased by looking at the scriptures, when that stops, stop studying. Stop there. If you reach that spot, stop. Even if it's in the middle of the sentence. This point was brought home in a very poignant exclamation mark way with a friend of mine who was working through the gospel of Luke in the Greek as part of his translation for his Greek exegesis class on the book of Luke. And he got to the part of the crucifixion and he was just doing the homework assignment, just doing the translation work from the original Greek. And he realized what he had just done. He had emotionlessly with no sense of awe translated the crucifixion and he was cut to the heart. He just studied the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the shedding of the blood for the receiving of men's souls and the redeeming of our souls and his soul. And it was an emotionless intellectual exercise and it cut him to the core. And I've never forgotten Mike's explanation of that event and the reality that, okay, I'm studying, I'm studying for the glory of Jesus. And if I'm not getting the glory of Jesus, I need to stop and do something different than study because my issue isn't more knowledge. My issue is a hard heart. And then lastly is, who do you say Jesus is? We often think of that term in the apologetics way of used by many apologists for the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and to trust him for salvation as part of an evangelistic mindset and question. But the question itself, as simple as it is, is much broader than just salvation of who do you say Jesus is. It's everything that he is. Is he your Lord and Savior? Is he your truth source? Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? That's enough to keep me occupied for about 20 years. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies. You are so good and so kind. And thank you for the way you've shown yourself to us this morning, Lord, through your word, through the gift of the lyrics of those who songs we've sang, the way you showed your glory to those hymn writers and songwriters so that we could taste a part of the joy and the glory that they saw, that we could see you glory, at least in a part of the way the disciples and John saw you. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, and let us see you in all your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.